On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. I was using art as a symbol here, as, a, as sort of a catch-all to talk about what it means to create something, what it means to build, and that could be a life. It could be building a family. It could be building a relationship. It could be building a reputation or a legacy of some kind. Um, here, it, it's manifested in this balloon dog sculpture, this ubiquitous balloon dog sculpture that can mean anything you want, or, or it can mean nothing at all. And the inspiration for the book comes at least in part from the Stone Song Satisfaction you know, that was always the stones, right? That was always their image, the the kind of the mirror image of the the Beatles, you know. They were mm-hmm. the provocative ones. They were the the more overtly sexual, the more overtly dangerous. And so it just fit right into that image. This song was tailor-made for their image and what they were trying to project. Morning. This sort of content is questionable. I got no problem breaking the rules. This is a rock and roll show. Rock is Lit! Welcome to Season 2 of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, brought to you by Pantheon Podcast Network. Make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes featuring some amazing rock novelists and music experts. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg, and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and pop on over to Good Pods or Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and rating. As always, Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. In this episode, Daniel Paisner joins me to talk about his novel, Balloon Dog, a story driven by a would-be writer protagonist who looks at the world through snatches of classic rock lyrics. The novel tells the story of a brazen art heist gone sideways and asks readers to consider what it means to leave a mark and what it takes to be swept up in the same currents that move the rest of the world. Later, Brad Page, host of I'm In Love With That Song podcast, another proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network, drops by to do a deep dive into the song that inspired the novel Balloon Dog, The Rolling Stones' Satisfaction. But first, we welcome Daniel Paisner to the show. Daniel is an American journalist, author, and podcaster. He is best known for his work as a ghostwriter and collaborator. He has published more than 70 books, including 17 New York Times bestsellers. He is also the author of three novels and several works of nonfiction. Some of his titles include The Girl in the Green Sweater, A Life in Holocaust Shadow, The Power of Broke, and Last Man Down. 
Daniel hosts the podcast As Told To, in which he interviews other authors about their experiences ghostwriting and collaborating with notable figures. His latest novel, Balloon Dog, was published by Kohler Books in June 2022. Thanks for joining the show, Dan. Christy, thanks for having me on. What a great conceit for a show. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm having fun with it. Just finished the first season. You're on the second. So this is this is a lot of fun. Okay. I'm on the B side, right? You're on the B side. Yes. <laughs> okay. So like a lot of authors I've had on the podcast, you did a playlist for your novel for the literature and music website, Large Hearted Boy. Between reading that playlist and Balloon Dog, I've got a definite impression of you as a classic rock aficionado. And I'm wondering what other kinds of music are on your radar. So let's play a set of five questions and find out. Okay, let's go. What music video made the biggest impression on you? Well, um, coming alongside this classic rock music aficionado label, I think we also have to conclude that I'm an old guy. So I grew up. <laughs> no, in we the, don't. In, <laughs> I grew up in the era before music videos. So when I think of of influential um, sort of um, outlook stamping. Uh, videos, I think of something like Woodstock. I think of actually going to a theater and watching that movie and recognizing for the first time with those great shots of the crowd being lifted and transported and overwhelmed and just completely annihilated by what was going on in the elements and on stage. To me, that was really my first sense as a kid. I was probably, you know, in middle school when I watched this movie in the theaters. Uh, it was my first sense of what music can do to you. So like the transformative powers of music when, when soaked in, surrounded by community. So that would be my answer. I don't know if it's acceptable. Judges, what, what do we say? Is that a music video or not? <laughs> I'm totally going with it. It counts. I was wondering when you were leading with old guy, if you were going to say hard day's night, that counts too. That counts too? Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I saw that when I was quite young. So that made a big impression on me as well. I saw that long before I ever saw anything on MTV. You know, all those monkeys um, yes. shows, those were those music count. videos. The movie Head was a, was a music video. They were inventive. They're funny. The music was great. Mickey Dolan still, I think, has one of the great voices in rock and roll history. I mean, if you just strip down those monkeys tracks and listen to the vocals, it's dynamite. Here we come. If you could see any band or solo artist living or dead in concert, who would it be? I would probably say John Lennon, um, which is, you know, not the most creative answer. But I did see the other three Beatles solo um, throughout their lives and throughout my life. And I came so close to seeing Lennon. I don't know if you remember, but he famously showed up at a Thanksgiving show at Madison Square Garden with Elton John. And they they played... Um, Whatever Gets You Through the Night, and I saw her standing there. It was the first time Lennon sang lead on I Saw Her Standing There, and it was a two-night gig at the Garden. It was Thanksgiving weekend, and I went to the second night. 
everybody in that whole arena was so stoked because they thought, oh, shit, John Lennon was here the night before. He's absolutely coming back again. And he didn't show up the next night, which was a, I mean, it was a great show, but it was a huge disappointment. So that's how close I came to actually seeing Lennon live. And it just um, feels like there's a hole there in where my concert going experience should be. Because there is one. That, that is a major pisser. That yeah. I can't imagine being at that second night and anticipating that and having it not happen. Number three, you're in a bar and you see a rock star sitting in the corner nursing a drink and reading your book, Balloon Dog. Who is it and what do you do? It's Patti Smith and I die a happy man. Is what I do because <laughs> she is such a gorgeous, otherworldly writer. And for my book to be in her hands and for her to have not tossed it to the ground with all the peanut shells would have signaled to me that I was at least barking up, if not the same tree, at least one in the same damn forest. And to me, that would be a thrill to see her find something to hold her attention in something I wrote would just be huge. That would be a thrill for me too, <laughs> Patty Smith. You're not the first one who said that. Do you read her books? I mean, her books are just awesome. Yes. I mean, they just take your breath away with how good they are. She's a great writer. Yeah. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Milton, pot of thieves. Wild cord on my sleeve Thick Heart stone My sins my own Alright, number four, fill in the blanks When I hear blank song I think of blank So you did send these questions uh, along beforehand so we need to, yes. of course, let your listeners know that I'm, it's a little bit of a cheat so I was thinking about this and thinking about this <laughs> And what I think about uh, are all the live tracks, all those tracks on uh, the Fillmore East Allman Brothers album. And the reason why I think about that is because I, I was at summer camp, maybe at the summer or two after that came out, and we had a counselor with a boombox, eight-track boombox, and um, he had just a couple albums. He had Made in Japan, he had that. And he, I don't know if Brothers and Sisters was out yet, but he played the hell out of this album. And the way, if you remember where the eight tracks, the way they were, they would cut the songs and it would jump to the next, next track and it would kind of truncate the songs. So every time I hear one of those cuts from Fillmore East, I'm sort of waiting, like muscle memory or ear muscle measure, I'm waiting for the song to drop out and come back in at the familiar place where it did that summer of 1972 as we listened to that thing into the ground. So yep. that's where I am when I listen to the Allman Brothers. I'm in upstate New York on a lake somewhere in a cabin. What's on your playlist now? I'm a big fan of Spotify's algorithm. I don't know if other folks in your world are, but I kind of love the way the platform just suggests other things for me to listen to based on what I already listen to. So it helps me, it helps me grow my game and it introduces me, it introduces me to all kinds of artists that I don't otherwise encounter. And for some reason this week, Odetta popped up on, um, on my playlist 
And I remembered I hadn't listened to her in a long time. And I went and I've been kind of doing a deep dive into the Odetta catalog and listening. She did a Dylan album in the early 60s of Dylan covers. There's another album she did early on in the 60s with some some classic covers. And they have these really nice stripped down arrangements. Uh, Later on in her career, when she had this sort of career resurgence, a lot of the production values in the studio seemed to be a little lush and a little orchestrated and a little uh, too much or not necessary with her voice. And this stripped down stuff is wonderful. So I've been listening to that Dylan album and the other cover album this week. It ain't no use Sitting wonder why, babe It don't matter anyhow It ain't no use Oh, well, now I got to go get that. Oh, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. I love asking this question because every week I add to my list of stuff to go listen to. People just come up with all kinds of interesting things. What's your favorite rock novel? Here I thought I could take some liberties with your question. So my favorite rock novel is... Um, is probably the commitments. I love Roddy Doyle and anything mm-hmm. he's ever written. I mean, I just it doesn't really feel like a rock novel as much as a novel of the human condition um, and what it means to strive and struggle. And so that's my rock novel answer. But because of the work I do as a ghostwriter, which is my principal living, I read a lot of celebrity memoirs and I read a lot of rock and roll memoirs. And there have been some really good ones lately, but I thought I would take this opportunity to send a little love to Ozzy Osbourne's book. Ozzy Osbourne's book, I Am Ozzy. I was not a Black Sabbath fan. I grew up kind of in that, it would have been completely natural for me. I went to see them probably at Nassau Coliseum, I guess when I was in high school, but I just wasn't that into them. I couldn't give a shit about Ozzy Osbourne, but somebody told me this was a good book. And I went and picked up a copy. I think it came out about 10 or 12 years ago. I was absolutely blown away. There is such a sense of voice and time and place. His character, his personality comes through. I still was not a Black Sabbath fan. I still can't listen. You know, I don't choose to listen to his music. I don't run away when it comes (laughs) and fills my ear. But I was so enormously impressed with the job that he did and with the writer he was working with, who's a British writer. I think he writes for British GQ. I can't remember his name. Chris, Chris Ayers, I think. I think he's a screenwriter, too. Uh, couldn't find. I remember looking and doing uh, sort of a search online. He hasn't done a lot of these kinds of books. But in this one case, he got Ozzy. And, you know, Ozzy had this sort of hard scrabble childhood and he writes at length about growing up and stepping to music and and letting you know music carry him where it may and it turned out it carried him on you know this wonderful swashbuckling larger than life kind of plane and i was thoroughly charmed so not a rock novel but a rock and roll memoir that's worth your listeners time i am ozzy hey tip your hat to ozzy and the writer sounds like a great read there you go. And let's not uh, forget Roddy, uh, uh, Roddy Doyle, you know, because the commitment yes, is, a, the is a stunner. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first idiot on your show who's mentioned that book. You are the first idiot on the show who's I am. mentioned it. Oh. 
Okay. Good choice. I like that book too. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Daniel Paisner. Make sure you stick around for the last segment of the podcast to catch Brad Page, host of I'm in Love with That Song, tell you everything you ever wanted to know about the Stones' legendary hit Satisfaction. Back in a moment. Gazing through the window at the world outside Wondering will Mother Earth survive Hoping that mankind will stop abusing her sometime This is Daniel Paisner and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store or I could make one of my new factor meals. (laughs) Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're 
back with Daniel Paisner, author of the new novel, Balloon Dog. First of all, congrats on the book. It's, it looks like it's creating quite a buzz. It was a finalist for the 2022 Santa Fe Writers Project Literary Award and included in Writer's Bone Podcast Best Books of 2022. Not too shabby. Well, thank you, Chrissy. It was a whole lot of fun to write, and hopefully a few people are finding it and having somewhat of a good time reading it. It is a fun read. It's a really good book. It isn't really a rock novel per se, and we sort of talked about this a little bit via email before the show. Mm-hmm. It's not a rock novel in that it's not about music or a band, and it doesn't focus on fandom as such. But music does play an interesting role in the story and the structure of the novel, which is why I wanted to include it in the podcast. And I think there's a lot to say about that. And as I've already mentioned, the inspiration for the book comes at least in part from the Stone song Satisfaction. So tell me about the origin of the novel and how that song plays in. You know, I think that song inspired this book in large part. In fact, the working title uh, and the gestating title as this book was taking shape was going to be the same cigarettes as me, which I always thought was one of the great snatches of lyric from the rock and roll canon. And for people of a certain age or listeners of a certain stripe, you hear those few words and you know instantly what we're talking about. And yes, and of course, you can find other lyrics that do the same thing. But to me, what those, what that lyric said was, you know, you can strive and you can reach for something and you can think that you've arrived at a certain place, but lo and behold, the grass is always greener and you're just never going to be satisfied and you'll never be, um, you'll never amount to anything because you don't smoke the same cigarettes as Mick and Keith. Right. Um, And I just thought it was a lovely lyrical phrase and I thought it would signal all the right emotions and set up the right set of expectations for for readers. So that's how the novel was written. And to echo that, I created a central character here who um, sort of moves about the planet in a way that's informed by the mood of some of these iconic rock and roll songs, you know, for what it's worth, uh, come together. There's a whole, there's 20, 22 of them, I forget how many. And in each one of them, there is a familiar phrase like that. And what I wanted was for the mood of each chapter to somehow reflect the mood of that song, which may or may not have been in the head of the uh, protagonist as those events were unfolding. So that was the conceit. And I would have called it the same cigarettes as me, except the Stones weren't too keen on the idea. (laughs) So I (laughs) I made the mistake of reaching out to get permission. So as you well know, you can't copyright a title. So I could have called the book Satisfaction and nobody would have cared. But because it was a lyric and it was a familiar, recognizable piece of lyric, there was some question whether or not the Stones could come after little old me once this book came out and made, you know, the tiniest little splash. So I sent a note to their publisher and I got to tell you, it was bounced around from their American publisher, their British publisher. Nobody could quite determine who controlled the rights and who was even in position to give me authority to use it. Uh, And I'm thinking, why the hell did I go down this rabbit hole? It took months. And finally, I heard back from somebody who seemed to know what they were talking about and said, look, we're still a few months away from being able to weigh in on this, but you can expect to spend about $3,200 to $3,500 for the rights. 
which eclipsed my eclipsed my advance by a factor of you know five or six or seven. Well, <laughs> so yeah. I'm thinking I'm thinking this is probably not the thing. So I leaned in a in another way. Um, and on my podcast, I happen to have in the middle of all this frustration, I happen to have Stevie Van Zandt on as a guest to talk about his memoir, which is also another terrific rock and roll memoir. The reason he was on the, the podcast is, a, is about ghostwriting. I had him on because he's sort of the antithesis of what we do. He wrote this he book wrote it on himself. Yeah, he didn't need no stinking ghostwriter. <laughs> so I wanted to, I wanted to talk to him about what that was like because it was you know it's part of the same conversation, and somehow that came up in the conversation and he says, you're an idiot. Why'd you even ask them? They wouldn't just go do it and let them chase you afterwards. And he was right. So this book coulda, shoulda, woulda been called the same cigarettes as me. Well, it's interesting that you you did use lyrics for chapter titles. So no no worries there. You know what? I figured nobody's really going to notice this book. So unless you have you know tens of millions of listeners on this podcast and we're talking about it, even if people see the cover <laughs> of the book, I can I can understand being concerned about the title because sometimes people look at book jackets as they bounce around. They have a presence online, but these were internal chapters, so I figured I would just go for it and roll the dice for chapter titles. So you know, there's the Donovan lyric. First, there is a mountain. I'm looking now. I'm cheating because I can't remember what's in here. But um, what do I have from Queen? I have any way the wind blows. I mean, I want I wanted people to be able to. Uh, see these chapter titles and immediately get not only the source material, well, you only do if you're a reader of a certain age, you know, like if my kids read this book, they don't know half these songs, right? Or more than half of these songs. But I wanted them to sort of be in the headspace of that song as they're reading that passage. That was kind of the idea. Yeah, I don't have the book in front of me, but I, I remember there's one chapter title comes from Kashmir. Yep. And I think there's one from Fairport Convention, yep. who knows where the yep. time goes, and and just several others that I, I thought, oh, this is fun. I mean, I recognize all these these songs. And and then the chapters were wonderful about kind of that the symmetry was there, that they were appropriate titles for the chapters. Well, I'm glad you found it that way. Going back to the origin of the book, this is about a heist of a, a piece of art and you actually were staying in, I think it was a beach house. And these movers show up and start moving this big piece of, of sculpture. I think it was an Alexander Calder piece of sculpture in the front yard. So I, I have a friend or friend who's, uh, whose brother is, has done very well, and he has a Calder sculpture on his front lawn. And, and we you know, sort of um, hide out at his house once a year or so, or at least we did before COVID. And we have this sort of weekend bacchanal with all these old pals, and we drink fabulous wine, and we swap stories, and we make fools of ourselves. And lo and behold, one Saturday or Sunday morning, we all had a few too many to drink the night before, and there's a knock on the door, and there's a crane in the driveway, and there's a couple of trucks, and there's a, like a crew of six or eight burly guys, and they say, we're here for the colder. And nobody even thinks anything of it. We just sort of wave them on, and they're dismantling this large kinetic 
industrial size sculpture that look, looks like the kind of piece you'd see, you know, in a in a town square or the lobby of a you know building in Manhattan. And because it's it's a movable piece of art, it needs to be um, relocated during the harsh winter months by the water. So. You know, the uh, the brother of the homeowner kind of knew this, but nobody said it was being moved that day. And we watched them for an hour and we're laughing, we're taking selfies, we're posing with the guy on the back of the truck. And, <laughs> and of course, you're not supposed to even take pictures of these, you know, classic works of art when they're disassembled because it does an injustice to the work and to the artist. And so finally, somebody thinks to call the homeowner. And lo and behold, the crew is legit and they're there with portfolio and we all live to see another day. But in that moment, I, it occurred to me, what a great jumping off point, what a great story it would be if you have this sort of iconic, world famous, um, enormously valuable work of art that's lifted in plain sight in front of in front of some of the protagonists and the players in your piece. So I kind of noodled around with that idea for a while. I, I moved the Hamptons location to a mountain home in Park City where people also have fabulous amounts of money and, and don't know what to do with it. And I, I changed the Calder to a Jeff Koons balloon dog sculpture because it seemed to me that there was something so ubiquitous and so hard to understand for a writer. You might feel the same way. Like you, how do you get notice? How do you get attention? Who decides what value to attach to which works of art. And here you have something that's a balloon animal that, you know, any, you know, two bit clown could make it a children's birthday party or on the run at the midway at a, at a carnival. Shit, I can make one of these things. And, and <laughs> lo and behold, these things are selling for tens of millions of dollars. And yeah. they're, they're like the smiley face of our pop art scene. And I'm wondering, what the hell do you have to do to catch a break? So I thought, I thought if that piece of art stood at the heart of this story, it would allow the struggling writer at the heart of this story to maybe reflect a little bit on why his career hasn't gone in the direction that he had hoped it would go uh, when he was a young writer and why he's now a not-so-young writer and still kind of scratching at it. So it became this, this Coons sculpture, which is, again, this is not a knock on Jeff Coons, who's done some fabulous, fabulous work and he's built, um, you know, a terrific uh, reputation and a brand and uh, an industry for himself. But he does, he does have a balloon dog sculpture there. Oh, that is he not has, a balloon, he he has dozens, he has dozens yes. of balloon dogs. Some of them are big, some of them are small, some of them are red, some of them are multicolored. That's part of his output. And uh, they sell for ridiculous amounts of money and they're in museum collections. They're in the homes of fine art collectors all over the world. Um, so this particular piece is a, a made up piece. It's fictional. Um, it doesn't really exist, but its essence is out there, Christy. And I wanted to, I wanted to <laughs> tap its essence and, and use it to help tell this story. And in this particular case, the way it helps tell the story is to sort of undermine the um, the main characters and the way they strive to be noticed and to produce something that matters, to live a life that matters.
I want to talk more about art a little bit later on. But first, let's go back to Harrison Clot, the main character who's who's a frustrated writer. Because I'm interested in, you know, again, how music is functioning in the book. And and here's a quote from the book. It's one of his things to attach a snatch of lyric to whatever's going on in his life, to whatever's not going on. Only with Harrison Clot, it's not like he slaps the words on a scene like a thought bubble. No, he actually hears the line in full, the way it's been drilled into him, the soundtrack of his life and times punctuating his moods. This is a guy who kind of whatever mood or whatever thing is going on, there, there's a song that goes with it. So I'm wondering, do you have a, a soundtrack playing in your head kind of thing going on with you? Do you have that in common with him? I think I do, you know, but uh, again, that said, I'm, I'm not really uh, a traditional lyric guy. I don't necessarily always hear lyrics. So when I sometimes listen to an artist talk about his or her work and they're talking about what the song is about, I'm thinking, well, I didn't get that (laughs) at all from the song. (laughs) However, I am a lyric guy for the way it can signal time and place. And I hear certain songs and um, certain familiar lines, and I'm immediately taken back either to where I was when I first heard them or to where I was when I heard them most of all. Um, And in the case of the songs that I reach for in this book, these are the songs of, of my growing up. I think all of them um, e- either, um, uh, they all sort of predate my graduation from high school. So they were all in the air and all around prior to 1978. Some of them go back to the sixties and some of them were, um, you know, queen. They were a little bit later in the, in the seventies, but all of them draw me to a time in my life where I was thinking about things or seeing things in a certain way. Um, so it's not necessarily, you know, the same cigarettes as me aside, the words themselves don't always signal the same thing as the feeling of the song that lies underneath those words. And, and part of that feeling is where I was and what that song meant to me, who I was with, all the things that come along with letting music color your lives in a meaningful way. It's all tied up in those familiar lines. So I can, you know, a, a familiar riff will do the same thing. You know, those opening chords to Made in Japan will do the same thing before the lyric starts. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes... Oh, it's satisfaction. Or God, satisfaction, too. And, wow. and so sometimes it's a lyric, sometimes it's a combination. But so that's what I kind of meant to signal to the readers in that little bit that you shared about Harrison Clot, who's this frustrated writer. And, you know, he sort of puts himself in these different spaces that reminds him of who he was as a young man when anything was possible. And we should tell your listeners too, that he did have a little bit of a splash with his first novel as a young man. And so he's allowed himself to move about the planet thinking of himself as a writer. But of course that second novel doesn't come the way the first one does and nobody cares. And the third one won't even come out of his fingertips onto the keyboard. And and he struggled, but he, he makes a living with words doing stupid shit. Like he writes, uh, what is it? What do I have him do? I have him writing seasonal menus for, for, for a local restaurant, you know, that kind of stuff. So he's a writer of a kind. He's living a writing adjacent life. But his worldview was shaped at thinking he had something to say. Rana Weinberg wrote that Balloon Dog beautifully captures the inner lives of its characters, their disappointments, regrets, and hopes, the joys and absurdities of our modern world. In Art Theft, 
midlife crisis, marriage, divorce, intimacy, parenthood, caring for an aging parent, and the lures of money and social media all converge in Daniel Paisner's wonderfully funny, inventive, and insightful novel. So I read that, and then, of course, the book, and maybe it's because I'm middle-aged and a novelist who's wondering why Oprah didn't pick my book for her book club and why I'm still scrambling around trying to figure out how to get going on novel number two. But all this resonated with me in a really, well, depressing way. All that writer stuff aside, I think when you get to a certain point in life, like middle age, most of us do struggle with the the nagging questions. What happens when the life you're living isn't the life you imagined? What happens when you feel stuck creatively and personally, and that's what this character's going through. And, you know, the literal inspiration for the book was the event of seeing this crew come and take this piece of art away and also hearing the song. But I'm gathering the abstract inspiration was maybe those rhetorical questions for you. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Like, What's the first rule they tell you in any, you know, beginning writing classes to write what you know or or speak into Um, the world that you're living in. And so I'm a frustrated writer. The frustrated writer Sitting at his table Waiting for his muse to come The days hinge on one thing One thing to remind him one thing to inspire him again. I'm lucky enough that my books get published, but they seem to be on a slippery downward slope. You know, the first book I wrote, I was much younger. I was, um, it was published by a big house, Dutton in New York. The next book was published by a smaller house, but still a significant house, basic books, bonus books, I'm sorry. And then, you know, indie house, indie house. So who knows? So, um, and yet I keep doing these things because to me, that's that's the luxury I buy myself or the privilege I buy myself with the other work that I do. You know, so the other work that I do for money, writing books for people like Serena Williams or Damon John or or you know Ray Lewis or whoever it is, that subsidizes and buys me the time to write books that, you know, hundreds of people or a couple thousand people read. So I'm, you know, I'm like you, I'm sort of wondering, maybe Oprah doesn't have my number or it's not open for DMs from her, but <laughs> I've also come to recalibrate my notion of success. And I wanted to ask my characters to maybe do the same. And of course, that doesn't just apply to the struggling writer at the heart of the story. It also applies to the bad guy at the heart of the story who engineers this theft. You know, he also he also wants something more out of life. He's also wondering, you know, why can't I get mine? You know, he, this is a guy who works in art moving and storage. He's in and out of the homes of the rich and famous, moving valuable works of art and squirreling them away and left to wonder, well, shit, they're not even, nobody's even looking at this stuff and they're paying tens of millions of dollars and we're putting it in our warehouse. So he sees an opportunity to maybe, um, you know, make bank and change up his life on the back of his circumstance. So he also wants something more. And I think that's the universal piece here. I wasn't expecting to tap into a readership of frustrated 
middle-aged writers, I was looking to find people who are dealing with the stuff of their lives. They're dealing with aging parents. They're dealing with you know, broken or, or limping along marriages. They're dealing with, um, you know, children who, who give them a little bit too much sass and disregard. They're dealing with not being, watching the world pass them by and wondering, you know, what do I have to do to matter? And how do I leave a footprint? And what is that footprint going to look like? So I wanted that weight to be on the shoulders of all of the characters uh, in this book, principally Clot, who you mentioned before, uh, and our other pal, Lem Devlin, the bad guy who, who sets this story in motion. And not to give the story away, but at some point, these, their two paths cross, and then things happen, and maybe they learn something about themselves. You know, as Lem Devlin realizes, it's not so easy to fence a two-ton sculpture that you know needs to be housed in a in a barn loft because it's so big you know if if a 10 million dollar right. sculpture goes missing people are gonna go looking for it so even though nobody noticed or said anything when they took it he realizes there's nothing he can do with it you know which is not unlike its fate if he had just squirreled it in to his warehouse legitimately as they were supposed to do the week after he wound up stealing it we have two ladies who are also two of the main characters and Sherry whose husband cheated on her with their neighbor, Fred. And she refers to that whole incident as Fred suck. And then we have Marjorie who's Harrison's wife. And, and she's, you know, she's sort of feeling a little bit washed up and disappointed too, that things have changed. And you're talking about having the, the kids and maybe the kids have a little more sass than you would like. So we've got these four characters who are all dealing with that, not just the frustrated writer, as you were saying. Speaking of Harrison's wife, Marjorie, yes. she shares an email address with her husband. Now, note to listeners, not a good idea. <laughs> not a good idea. Not a good idea. But at one point, and I'm, I'm not going to give a bunch away here, but at one point she does read a questionable email addressed to Harrison. Do you want to say anything about that? Um, she is on the receiving end of a uh, spam email or an extortion spam email that suggests that her husband uh, on this shared email account uh, was visiting some uh, porn sites um, and behaving the way people do when they're visiting porn sites. And this, and the, <laughs> and this guy was uh, sort of blackmailing her in, in a scam. That's a familiar scam. You could sort of Google yes. it and see that there's a long tail of, of uh, that that line of attack. I wanted her to have the you know, have reason to think about who the man her husband has become and how he has, you know, he might not only be a disappointment to himself, he also might be starting to disappoint her as well. Um, and that maybe her life is not where she wants it to be. And maybe in her case, she thinks it's not on her, that it's on him that he hasn't taken them as a family or as a, as a couple where she'd hoped that they would go.
the other female character, Sherry, who um, was uh, cheated on by her husband in an incident that you referred to as the Fred Suck. We should tell our listeners why she calls it that. Uh, can I? Is it, or is this? Can we be blue on this? Go ahead, so no. so it's, it, it doesn't just suck that um, her husband cheated on her, but her husband cheated on her um, with the neighbor next door who was a guy. She walked in and found um, and found her husband. And found a little fellatio going. So um, Fred was on the receiving end, so it became the Fred song. So she is occasioned to think that her whole life has been a lie. So not only is it that she and her husband are no longer together, they're not together in such a way that undermines and maybe erases everything they once did have together. When a partner um, declares that they're gay, it jettisons whatever it is that you thought you might have had and throws it to the curb. So she's left to deal with that. She also stands as the kind of object of affection in the Facebook musings of our man Harrison Clot. You know, they're sort of um, once removed acquaintances. And uh, nevertheless, she alights on his Facebook feed and he spends a lot of time you know, wondering about the stuff of her life and imagining, I suppose, what his life might look like if it was attached to hers. So though their lives are all kind of intertwined. They're all four of them in a state of flux. And I wanted that to be the state of play when this disruptive moment of, with the uh, sculpture comes about and to see how they may or may not be impacted by that. So that's uh, that, that's the role they all play here. One of the questions the novel poses is, what is art? And that is a big unanswerable question in any sort of definitive way, which means it's a great question to explore in fiction. And then there are the ancillary questions that go with that, such as who gets to decide what art is and what kind of value it has to what people. You said on the Stepping from the Shadows podcast that this topic gave you the opportunity to explore some of the things you thought about as a struggling mid-list author. You know, I don't want to get into a conversation about, let's come up with a definition of art, because I don't think you can do that. But I'm interested in what your thoughts are. I mean, what made you want to play with that? You know, what made me want to play with that is probably... Um, uh, some of the same thoughts that um, that bounce around in your head uh, as you put your book out into the world, you know, because, you know, we struggling midlist writers are enormously proud of the work we do. We're not, we're not doing this as navel gazing. You know, we think that we have something to say and we fantasize about other people finding what it is we have to say and getting something from it. Uh, but who decides who's going to respond in a big time way? And I find that, you know, I read books that are, um, you know, the sensation of the moment. They're the most talked about books of the season. And I pick them up and I wonder what the hell's going on. There doesn't seem to be any there there. But they have the stamp of approval from, you know, some critic somewhere that people follow. And I think the same thing applies to the movies that seep into the culture and to sculptures and other works of art and, and pieces of architecture. And it's all very arbitrary. And the, the real answer I've determined is that nobody gets to decide. It, it's like it's, it's on the whims of the gods. And either you're lucky enough to be caught up in that and you're swept along and your work is elevated because of it, 
and you're entitled to the riches that come along with that, or at least the comforts that come along with that and the recognition. Um, and then some of us, we don't catch the same wind and the gods don't smile on us in quite the same way. But it doesn't mean that the one piece is more or less valuable than the other. It just means, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, there was, there's a scene, I can't remember which episode, but there's a scene in Veep. But I'm sure there's a similar scene everywhere where, you know, a speechwriter or, or a brand builder or somebody says, you know, just write a viral tweet and it'll change everything. Well, how do you write a viral tweet? You you can't decide that you're going to write a viral tweet, and neither can you decide that you're going to write a best-selling book or um, a coveted work of art. It just kind of happens. And so, what I've decided at you know this midpoint in my life is I need to sort of redefine what that means to be successful. And and to me. I've now decided, and I, I don't, and it's not really a line that I tell myself or a line that I share uh, with others, so they don't think that this is a story of a sad sack midlist novelist written by a sad sack midlist midlist novelist. You know, I, I truly believe that success is the ability to get to do this again. That to me is success. So if if this book finds enough of an audience where I'm invited back to the party again, and there's a publisher on the other end of, um, of my Wi-Fi connection who's waiting for me to send them the manuscript and eager to publish it, that's a win. And that can happen at our level, as you know, and I don't mean to relegate you to my level, but, you know, I've, I've <laughs> I'm happy to be there. <laughs> but, you know, at, at this level, that can mean, you know, you sell a thousand copies and and you get some nice review attention. And there are indie presses out there who can make noise with that and will want to be in in business with you again for the next book. To me, that's what success yeah. is. I get a license to do this again. I can play in the sandbox for another day. Um, and that's success. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to be the Reese Witherspoon book club selection for next month or the Oprah selection, but it does mean that I get to go at it again. After reading the book, I started Googling what famous artists have to say about what art is. So I'm going to throw a few quotes out there and get your thoughts about them. Okay. Here's one from Georgia O'Keeffe. She says, filling a space in a beautiful way. That's what art means to me. And then Pablo Picasso says, we all know that art is not truth. Art is a lie that makes us realize truth. And here's one from Federico Fellini, one of my favorite directors. All art is autobiographical. The pearl is in the oyster's autobiography. And then this is probably my favorite. This is from Andy Warhol. Art is what you can get away with. And that sort of reminded me of the whole situation in the novel with, you know, this whole big sculpture and, and is this art? This is, you know, the, the conversation that sort of comes up when you, when you think about this book. I love that Warhol quote. I wish I found yeah. that. I could I could have used that as the epigraph for this book. <laughs> uh, but but I and I think that's it's great that you found those. I love them. But 
you know, let's remind ourselves, and I don't know any, I'm not smart enough to know any examples to cite directly, but we all understand that a lot of great art, a lot of widely read novelists, a lot of um, musicians, you know, these folks were wildly unappreciated in their time on earth. And it's not until in many cases after their death um, that people take a look at their work as if for the first time, you know, Beethoven, um, there, there's all kinds of folks who did not make the impression in the moment that they did in uh, in the aftermath. Sure. So art is not only what you can get away with, it's also art is what seems to touch people in a meaningful way and makes them think about their own existence. I mean, to, so to me, I'm not so full of myself to think that what I'm doing is art. There's something arrogant about a writer sitting down thinking, I'm, I'm out to tell a story and I want to engage people and interest people in that story and keep them turning pages and maybe interesting them enough that they say to a friend, hey, I just read this great story. You should check it out. Art feels to me like it's something else, that it's something mm. next level, that it is this elusive stuff that Picasso and Georgia O'Keeffe uh, and even Warhol are are speaking to in in those in that commentary. Um, it, it's an unknowable thing in my in my mind, which means I would have a hard time sitting down in the morning and pouring myself a cup of coffee and saying to myself. I'm going to make art. It's a lot easier for me to sit down and think, all right, I'm going to tell a hell of a story today. And yes. I'm, going to, I'm going to hold your attention on the page and I'm going to engage you and have a conversation with you one-on-one. -on -one. Okay. And, and, and that's is a more meaningful thing. And maybe, maybe young writers can, can grab at that and say, you know what, it's a little, going to be a little bit easier to create a piece of music or to write a story um, or, or to throw some something on a canvas, thinking that my job is not to entertain or engage the masses, but it is to entertain the person in the room with me. If if I can satisfy myself as a writer, yeah, I do pay attention to tone and structure. I do care about voice. I'm enormously proud of what I put on the page, but that's I'm pleasing me. I'm not fooling myself into thinking. That I'm, you know, the next big thing in in letters in in American publishing. Either It'd be nice if it happens, but it's but it ain't happening, baby. <laughs> or at least it hasn't. Or at least it hasn't happened yet. How many listeners you have, Christy? Uh, maybe we should talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're quite there yet. Okay. All right, let's do shift gears. I got this idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. Okay. You can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. Ready? Go ahead. Yeah. And this one, you didn't give me a heads up like you did those other questions. Okay. And, and just lit listeners, I gave him the questions to that very beginning five questions thing, and that's it. The rest of the stuff, he didn't know what I was going to say. Okay. Here's the first thing. Lines from songs from Balloon Dog that most resonate with you personally. You can only pick one. Ah, but I was so much older then. Turn and face the strange. All will be revealed. Oh, they're all good. And they're all, they all kind of speak into the themes of this book. But uh, I think it would have to be the Dylan line. Yes. Because, you know, there's a wistfulness to that. You know, we are. And I'm sure... You know, my 30-something kids are feeling their version of the same thing. And 
uh, it depends where you are at, at, at what stage of life you are, but there's always a tendency to look over your shoulder and see um, the person you were alongside this person you become. So uh, but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. I love that line. Okay, I do too. From Bob Dylan, my back pages turn and face a strange most Boeing from changes. And then, of course, all will be revealed Zeppelin cashmere. Here's the next one. Pick one. Mm-hmm. Music formats, cassettes, CDs, or vinyl? Uh, I think it would have to be vinyl, although vinyl is unwieldy and it's difficult to enjoy. <laughs> um, sound quality on cassettes was always awful. I hated, I hated those. Um, so, so that's out. And, you know, the CD, electronic, it just seems so kind of antiseptic and I wasn't quite there. But as I said earlier in this uh, podcast, I'm, I do listen a lot of the time, in fact, probably most of the time to uh, Spotify. You know, listening listening to vinyl uh, requires work. You got to get up, you got to change the record, you got to clean off the record. But I still have my collection and uh, uh, it's great. I'm not parting with it anytime soon. I remember in my era, um, maybe in yours, when you went away to college, the um, we didn't know our roommates. It was all random. And we got somebody's phone number in the mail and we called them up. And the only question I wanted to hear about was, are you bringing a stereo? Because our stereos <laughs> in those days were big, clunky things. You know, I had these big KLH speakers and, a, and it was yes. a huge enterprise. It took up a lot of our dorm real estate. So there's no reason to have two um, stereos. So I'm meeting my roommate for the first time on the phone, a kid from Rochester. I don't know if we have anything in common. I say to him, I'm bringing my stereo. He says to me, great, I'll bring my album. His album? I'll bring my album. So right oh, away dear. I knew oh, I dear. knew what I was in for. <laughs> That is not good, Dan. That is not good. It, 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 the album was um, Billy Joel, The Stranger, which was the biggest That's album. That's a good album. It's big, yeah, but it's, you know, it's the biggest album in the land. It's the balloon dog of albums. If, if, it's, <laughs> if it's 1978, it's the balloon dog of albums. Everybody has that, wow. right? Wow. <laughs> so I was in for a long year. So um, yes. anyway, that's an answer somehow to your question or somehow your question led me there. So go on, go on. <laughs> Best Stones lineup. This is the lineup with Brian Jones, the original lineup, with Mick Taylor, who replaced Brian Jones upon his de- Well, actually, Brian Jones got fired and then died. Mick Taylor or Ron Wood. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. Well, um, we know we've- People li- will fight over this. They will fight over this. Oh, I, yes. I, for years, I would have said Mick Taylor. Because um, Mick Taylor was the first um, of that group that I saw. I, I came late, but Brian Jones is already gone. Um, but, you know, I always thought of that as the most fertile ground for the Stones. You know, he was there in Exile and Sticky Fingers and um, what, Get Your Yaya's Out and. Um, it's only else? rock and roll. Only rock and roll. So he played up until uh, Black and Blue, which was Ronnie Wood, right? So mm-hmm. I would have. I would have fought you and said Mick Taylor, even though it was a brief sojourn. What made me change my thinking there, and I don't know that I've changed it yet, but what made me rethink it, I guess, is the recent documentary on the Stones that uh, came out over the summer where each part um, focused on one member of the band. So there was a Mick segment, there was a whole episode on Mick, there was a whole episode on Keith, a whole episode on Ronnie, Charlie, and so on. In the Ronnie Wood uh, segment, Keith... Mick and others all went out of their way to say 
what an essential what essential glue Ron Wood was to the Stones, and that were it not for his calming influence in the studio, among them socially, you know, as they interacted with each other, and of course, not least on stage or in the studio with his ability on the guitar, that he has played a seminal role um, in the evolution of the Stones over the last 40 years since he joined them, and the fact that they're still together. So I started to think that even though the music that came out of the Mick Taylor era seems to me more essentially stones-ish, I might have to give the nod to Ronnie Wood. All right. I like it. Next to the last one, best song about robberies. We have a book about a heist, so we have to talk about songs about robberies. Take the Money and Run, Steve Miller Band, Smuggler's Blues, Glenn Fry, or One Piece at a Time, Johnny Cash. Oh, my God. Um, I don't love the Glenn Fry song. That seems too poppy and kitschy, right? Okay. So that's out between these two. Um, I don't know that I know the Johnny Cash song. Uh, should I know the Johnny Cash song? Hum a few bars, Christine. <laughs> One piece at a time. Da, 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 da. I'm glad the video's not showing. <laughs> I don't know. Can I... Can I go with D? I, mean, I don't know a lot of songs about theft and robbery. You know, there's there's the great... Gypsies, <laughs> tramps, and thieves. And there's that great Genesis uh, robbery, assault, and battery song. Yes. If you like, you know, that kind of prog rock sound. And, okay. of course, the whole Dylan album, Love and Theft, yeah. um, was, a, was about that in a way without being about, directly about mm-hmm. uh, a heist. So... I don't know that I'm, 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 maybe I'm pushing back on your choices. I'm going to go with Johnny Cash. I'm going with Johnny Cash just because he's Johnny Cash, but understanding I've never heard that fucking song or I don't remember <laughs> hearing that song. I, I do love that song. I just, I can't seem to, to sing it right now. He's revered. I mean, it's amazing the way other artists put him on a pedestal, the way he kind of stripped down these songs and interpreted them um, and the way they passed through him was, was kind of great. All right. Last category. This is important. Think really hard about this. Mm-hmm. Best rock guitarist, Jimmy Page, Jimmy Page, or Jimmy Page. <laughs> You're not biased or anything, are you? No. And you don't get a D on this. You don't get a D. Well, then I think I'm going to have to go with uh, Jimmy Page for 200, Alex. <laughs> I don't want to piss off the host. That's the Daily Double, so you win. I will tell you, though, Christy, this is interesting because I thought you were going to give me some choices there. I appreciate that you didn't, so I I honor (laughs) that. But I was wondering what I was going to say if Eric Clapton was a choice because, you know, it's kind of baked in to people of my generation that Clapton is in the conversation, right? And I got to tell you, since in the last two or three years – not so much because mm-hmm. he, he's opened his mouth and he's ex- he's had an opinion and he's expressed himself in ways that um, caused me to rethink everything about his music going back yeah. to day one. And I can't listen to him in the same way. The same with Roger Waters. I can't yeah. listen to that music in the same way. So, you know, you don't necessarily want to get too close to the artists that you admire. Because when you see too much, when you pull back the curtain, you might not like what's there. Yeah, and you can't unsee it. 
Now, I, I wouldn't have thrown him in the mix, even though he's one of the Yardbirds guitarists. I probably would have, if I was actually going to do three different ones, I probably would have put Jimi Hendrix in there and, and Jeff Beck. You know, I'm not smart enough. I don't really uh, have the ear to discern that kind of a nuance. But a lot of people I admire, a lot of critics that I admire, also put George Harrison in that conversation. And I've never thought of him in that way. But other people do, which is kind of nice to know. And knowing that, it pushes you to listen to some of his work uh, more attentively. I'll tell you who else, if I'm really thinking about it, who I would throw in there that you might not, on the surface, think should be in there, Prince. Yeah. Prince was a great guitarist, yeah. just a, a brilliant musician. And very much admired by his contemporaries for his chops, not just for yes. his persona, but for his chops. And there's that piece he did, which went a little bit viral. I think it came after the Saturday Night Live 40th anniversary oh yeah and there was a there was a backstage after party Mm -hmm. and he just shredded and Mm -hmm. he just tore a roof off that place and that clip got a lot of love so listeners find that if you can oh i've seen it uh yes prince was just amazing so i I would have thrown him in there on, on second thought fun fact when you were in grade school, I think it was kindergarten or second grade, you used to put together a community newspaper with a friend of yours whose mom was a librarian. And I love this. She'd run it off on mimeograph paper and you guys would slip it under people's doors. That is adorable. It's <laughs> <laughs> just adorable. can see these little guys. You did your research, Christy. Good for you. I tip my hat to you. <laughs> Why, thank you. I appreciate it. But yes, I did do that, and it was kind of great. But of course, the breaking news that we were covering was not all that monumental. It's like somebody's <laughs> dog ran away, and they couldn't find the dog for half an hour. Or Hey, this is important. <laughs> That's important shit. That is important shit. So it was not exactly yes. stop the press's stuff, but... Um, <laughs> But, you know, that his mom would take it to school where they had those mimeograph things and she'd run it off and bring it home for us the next day. And there we go. I don't know if we charged for it or if we just slipped it on without being asked. If we slipped it under the doors, I have to ask him. Well, I know you're running out of time here. So what have you got going on you want to let people know about? Uh, well, I have this podcast of my own that has lately... Uh, uh, been the focus of a lot of my attention. I fo- I talked to, um, I started out talking only to ghostwriters, people who do the kind yeah. of work I do, writing celebrity memoirs, autobiographies. But I've sort of expanded the format because I realized the conversation was a little bit larger than that. And I also realized I was going to run out of people to talk to. So we now talk to um, w- uh, anybody who writes in service of someone else's voice or who writes on behalf of someone else or in collaboration with someone else. So I've been talking to songwriters, joke writers, speech writers, and you know, book writers and book doctors like myself. And that's been um, a lot of fun. That's called As Told To. And uh, I'm working on a bunch of other celebrity-driven books. I'm typically not allowed to talk about them until they're announced because 
I'm supposed to, or the projects are anonymous until they're announced. So we will have to save that, but I will, uh, I'll let you know when we can announce them. But there's some fun people, interesting people who I admire, who have good stories to tell. So that kind of fills my days and, and that's good. And I'm noodling around with an idea for another book. So um, very nice. it's germinating. Well, Dan, thanks so much for being on the show. Christy, thanks for having me. Thanks for relaxing your format a little bit to include this one. But this was great. I really enjoyed this talk and appreciated how much effort you put into it. Well, I'm very glad that you could come on. We could work this out. Find Daniel Paisner on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Dan Paisner and As Told to Podcast. And visit his website, danielpaisner.com. Pick up a copy of Balloon Dog and Dan's other books at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books. We'll take another short break, then we'll be joined by Brad Page of I'm In Love With That Song, who will give a little history, gossip, and who knows what all about the Stones tune Satisfaction. This is Brad Page from the I'm In Love With That Song podcast, and you're listening to Rock Is Lit. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with more Rock is Lit. I'm happy to welcome my fellow Pantheon Podcast Network family member, Brad Page, host of I'm in Love with That Song, a music commentary, song analysis, and rock history podcast. In each episode, Brad takes one of his favorite songs and does a deep dive into it, listening to all the nuances that make it a great song. And I was just saying before I started recording, you had me on your show last year for one of your albums that made us episodes to talk about Led Zeppelin Four and Queen's A Day at the Races. And that was so yep. much fun. But as I was saying, it's just surreal because I wasn't even thinking about doing a podcast at that point. I was just doing promo for my novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. So it's great to have you here. And thanks so much for giving me your time. Oh, of course. You got bit by the bug. I did. <laughs> Well, I know you've done a few episodes of I'm in Love with That Song on the Stones. Gimme Shelter and Can You Hear Me Knocking immediately come to mind. But That's have right. you done any episodes on Satisfaction? Uh, I have not, although I did do a episode that was all about the year 1965, which mm. is, of course, the year that this song came out. So we did talk about it in the context of just the overall year. What an incredible year 1965 was. 
for music. This is just one of the amazing songs that came out that year. Well, let's talk about that a minute. Satisfaction is the inspiration behind Daniel Paisner's novel, Balloon Dog, which is the focus of this episode. And I thought it would be fun for you to do one of your Brad Page deep dives into that song. But you mentioned context. You mentioned 1965. So let's talk about that a little bit. That was a big year, culturally, socially, politically, and musically. What comes to your mind when you think of that year in terms of what was shaping the musical landscape? There was just so much. I mean, it was in some ways the peak of the British invasion. You know, the Beatles hit the year before and then everything that followed that. But I think that was really the year when, you know, it was just kind of hitting its its peak. At the same time, you had just great things happening in soul and R&B music. Um, you know, most of the... I mean, it really started with the Beatles, but most of the, what was prior, the fifth, the sound of the fifties had largely been swept out, uh, you know, particularly the, the teen idols, like yes. Fabian and all of that kind of stuff that, you know, some of that was still on the charts, but I mean, for by and large, what, what pop culture was, what teenagers were into at the time, you know, it was the, the, Swing in sixties were really just kicking off in full swing that year. It's just so many great records that that came out, and uh, you know, it's kind of set the stage for what we think when we think of like classic rock today. Kind of really starts late sixty four, sixty five, and forwards. Yeah, I think of that year, and the civil rights movement was gaining momentum. Mm-hmm. And Malcolm X died that year. We have the march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. And President Johnson signed his Voting Rights Act of 1965. And then, for God's sake, Dylan went electric at the Newport Folk Festival that right. year, and everybody lost their mind. And of course, the Vietnam War is still raging. And so, they're, like you were saying, there are all of these songs, and some of them, when I mean, they run the gamut, some of them are socially conscious songs like A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke, I Ain't Marching Anymore by Phil Ox, Eve of Destruction by Barry McGuire. But then, you have the fun songs like California Girls by the Beach Boys and Day Tripper by the Beatles and Do You Believe in Magic by the Eleven Spoonful. That year really was a mixed bag of of songs and the kind of music that was being made. And then here comes I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Stones. Right. And, um, you know, this song was about as, I don't know if you could really call it political, but it was topical for a rock song, you know, a lot of those songs that you were talking about, you know, that were more in the folk world, rock mm-hmm. hadn't quite got there yet. You know, the Beatles and so many other artists were really listening to Dylan and paying attention to him. Uh, but the song, the lyrics themselves hadn't quite got there yet. They were heading in there and it was starting to happen. Um, but satisfaction's you know, for the Stones, who were never a political band, but, you know, this song really does talk about, you know, it's kind of mocking advertising and sort of the social norms and that kind of thing. Yes. Tell me a little bit about the origin of that song. Who wrote it? What was that situation? Well, the Stones are on tour in the U.S. in the spring of 1965, and one night in a hotel room in Florida, Keith Richards 
has a new tape recorder and he's lugging around with him and he wakes up in the middle of the night and plays this riff into the tape recorder and then goes back to bed and falls asleep and would have never remembered that he did it except when he wakes up the next day he looks at the tape recorder and the tape is all the way at the end so he rewinds it rewinds it rewinds it to the beginning and there's him playing this riff and then 40 minutes of him snoring <laughs> that's the story he tells anyway okay so he didn't even remember writing it um but um and he always said he wished he could he still had that tape god knows what happened to it but that would be an amazing piece of trivia but he came up with the riff and the title uh, he was a huge Chuck Berry fan, and there's a song by Chuck Berry called 30 Days, where there's a line in it, um, if I don't get no satisfaction from the judge. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where he got the title from. But all of the lyrics come from Mick and all of that stuff about, you know, kind of railing against conformity and advertising and all of that. That's what Mick brought to it, which is a huge part of the, the, the song. Um, Mick said initially it sounded more like a folk song when they started working on it. Um, the first version that they recorded of it was actually done at Chess Studios in Chicago in May of 65. They had recorded there before. And of course, to them, that was hallowed ground because they loved Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and all those guys yeah. recorded at Chess. So they, uh, when they were on tour in America, if they could possibly get there, they would sing, swing through there and try to do some work because it was still an active studio at the time. This would actually be the last time that they uh, recorded at chess, but they took a stab at doing um, satisfaction, uh, but they weren't real happy with it. They later revisited it not that long later, probably, I don't know, a week or a couple of weeks later when they were swinging through LA, they went to the RCA studios in, in LA there and reworked it. Um, and that famous guitar riff that is so identifiable. One of the most iconic moments in rock history was originally meant to be played by a horn section. And Keith was just trying to emulate the sound of the horn section on his guitar. It wasn't meant to be the final version. It was just almost like a demo in a way. And he couldn't quite get the sound right. So they sent Ian Stewart, who was kind of their roadie and piano player and kind of all purpose guy literally went to a music store down the street or around the corner and came back with a, a Gibson Maestro fuzz tone pedal. And that's the magic. That's where that sound, that snarly guitar mm -hmm. sound comes from that, that pedal. That was Keith playing his Gibson Firebird uh, 7 through, um, through that fuzz tone. That song's success because of that fuzz box boosted sales of the Gibson fuzz box so that the entire available stock sold out by the end of 65. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, it, and really set 
guitar players off that still continues today a love and passion for for guitar pedals but you know that was kind of the first time people really heard something like that on a, on a pop record that way it just totally captured the imagination i think it was newsweek magazine called that riff the five notes that shook the world you know it you uh, from the time first time i heard that song that's what grabs you and it, it is one of those iconic songs where you immediately within the first note or two know what it is because of that riff it's so simple so simple mm-hmm. but so memorable you know, other things about the song too is that that uh, Charlie Watts he took that drum beat from Roy Orbison's "Pretty Woman." That's what he was thinking of when he was playing. Really, a drum beat. Yeah. It's always been a mystery to exactly what, if anything, Brian Jones played on the song. Well, didn't he play harmonica on like the first recording? That's right. The version that they did uh, at chess, I believe he played harmonica on, but um, uh, it's not really prevalent or were audible on on the the second version they did um supposedly there's some piano on there too i think buried buried far in the mix but it's primarily the guitars and keith overdubbed an acoustic guitar in there but questionable exactly what brian contributed mixed vocal apparently was all done in one take i was going to ask you about that i read that and i thought well is that true that's what they say um, and, uh, I, you know, it's, I can believe it. I mean, these guys were hitting the studio, uh, on the road in between gigs in and out working incredibly quickly. In fact, there's plenty of evidence of that in Keith's guitar track. If you listen closely, you can hear him turning that fuzz pedal on and off, uh, a couple of times at the wrong spot. <laughs> he first turns it on, of course, it's on at the beginning of the riff, but you can hear him turn it on again about 35 seconds into the song. And then it goes off again. And then one minute and 35 seconds into the song, he turns it on, but he's like a note too late. So the first note is kind of a clean, you know, the clean guitar, and then the fuzz tone comes in. Then at two minutes and 33 seconds, he turns it on. A bit too early. He was probably because he knew he probably missed it the last cue, so he jumps on it a bit early, and you can hear that fuzz click on a little <laughs> bit early. These days, you know, that would be fixed. That would all be redone in Pro Tools and you know all of that stuff. But back then, you were rolling on tape. They were playing all these the basic tracks live, and they didn't have time to mess around because they you know they didn't have two weeks to spend in the studio on one song. They were lucky to get it done in a day. That was the whirlwind treadmill that these guys were on, all of these bands at the time. And I always thought the title was really interesting because it's such a contradiction. I mean, you have that, the, the whole title is I Can't Get No Satisfaction. So there's that kind of contradiction right there implied and or stated, not implied. And, and I thought, well, no wonder Mick is frustrated, but it was Keith that came up with that. 
Yeah, and again, it's kind of it, it, at least you know he heard it in yeah. that Chuck Berry song. So how much influence that had, but it certainly is is there. And we all know Chuck was a huge influence on Keith and on Mick. Uh, but I, I imagine he just brought this tape or whatever to to Mick and said, "Look, I I got an idea for a song." I'm calling it, uh, I can't get no satisfaction and it goes, dan, 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 <laughs> and, then, you know, and then that's it. Right. And then they, they figure the rest out, but you know, that was the partnership. That was the, the teamwork between those two. Okay. So it was released in the U S as a single in June, 1965. What was the reception? Uh, I mean, it was pretty, pretty much a smash out of the gate. Uh, interestingly enough, it wasn't released in the UK until August, I believe August 20th is when it came mm. out. But in both countries, it was a number one hit. Uh, it was really the thing that pushed the stones over the top, I think. Yeah. Well, why was it delayed release in the UK? Don't know. I don't know. Um, usually those things are reversed. You yeah. Know, they're, they're, the British bands, they would come out in, in the UK first. And I don't know, except that maybe the record company just knew they had a hit as soon as they heard it and just wanted to get it out there. The record companies would do a lot of things like that, just in general, you know, uh, release things without the artist even knowing it was, <laughs> it was released. And, you know, remixing records and, you know, the Beatles catalog or Beatles story is full of, of, you know, all those U.S. records that they didn't even really necessarily know what was on them. You know, they were making their specific records in, in England, and then the, the Capitol Records over here was just cutting and pasting records together. For every one U.K. album, there's, you know, two U.S. records uh, because they were pulling singles off. So who knows? It could have been something like that. I, I don't know, but it is interesting. One thing I did hear was that in the UK, the song was initially played only on pirate radio stations because the lyrics were considered too sexually suggestive, and they had to change the lyrics on a show or two. Yeah, well, you know that was always the Stones, right? That was always their image, the the kind of the mirror image of the the Beatles. You know, they were mm-hmm. the provocative ones. They were the the more overtly sexual, the more overtly dangerous. And so it just fit right into that. Im- this song was tailor-made for their image and what they were trying to project, you know, that just that kind of, again, with the way Mick sings it, the way he just, as the song, you know, he starts, he's kind of, kind of not whispering, but it's a very soft delivery at the beginning, right? Yes. And, and, and he builds over the song till at the end, he's like sort of ranting at you. <laughs> but that was just not something that, you know, the Beatles did. It's a totally unique Stones song. They were always the, the ones that would be more likely to be, you know, told to change lyrics. Uh, <laughs> Naughty. Spend some time together as opposed yes, to night. Yes, yes. That's a famous moment. And that's a great clip on Sullivan when the, the camera pans in to Mick's face when he's singing that. He just looks so disgusting. Right. He's practically rolling his eyes. Let's talk about the song's legacy. It certainly has had lasting power. I mean, we all know that opening riff immediately. It has held up remarkably well, and there have been all these covers of it. Where do you think it, it fits in the pantheon of rock songs? Across the board, it's, it's a classic. You know, it's interesting that, you know, Otis Redding, 
had a great version of it. And that was kind of what they were originally going for. He put the the horns in there that they wanted in the first place. And that's a classic. And then, of course, you have Devo reworking it in the 70s, the late 70s. And that's a classic. Oh, my gosh. I forgot about Devo. You're right. They did a cover. Yeah. And it's it's a great oddball version. And there's a great clip of them playing it on Saturday Night Live that's just classic. Ladies and gentlemen, Devo. So the song, you know, it can just continue to have uh, relevancy, but just in terms of a great rock single, it's one of the greats. It's absolutely one of the great guitar riffs of all time. It's just a, a classic any way you look at it. Absolutely. So I know a lot of their catalog, at least at one time, I'm not sure if it still is, was the property of Alan Klein's company, ABKCO. Do you know if this song is still in Alan Klein's property? Yes. I believe it's still part of ABCO or ABKCO, however you you say it. But yeah, at least the last reference material I have, it's still still property of of this long since passed away manager who, you know, his history is pretty interesting and shady. It's funny how, you know, the Beatles and the Stones intertwine, including with Alan Klein. Well, I now know everything there is to know about Satisfaction. I can sleep well tonight. It's a great song. Uh, You know, it's one of those ones that you think you know, because we've all heard it ad nauseum on classic rock radio, whatever. But I bet most people haven't noticed all those little clams there with with Keith turning the fuzz pedal on and off. So it's just a perfect example of how there's always something more to discover in these great songs. If you, if you re-listen again. So I would encourage people to, you know, dig out your old copy, your old stones records and crank up satisfaction and listen to it again with fresh ears. It's one of my all time favorite songs for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Brad. This was great. My pleasure. Catch Brad on I'm in love with that song, wherever you get your podcasts. Where can folks find out more about you and the podcast? Are you on social media? Yeah, we're on, you know, Facebook is kind of our our home base for uh, feedback and reviews and comments. So you can find us there. Just look for the I'm in love with that song podcast. The website is lovethatsongpodcast.com. Of course, we're on Spotify and Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Amazon Music. And you can find it wherever there's podcasts, you can find our show. Just look for the I'm in Love With That Song podcast. Yes, and all hail Pantheon Podcast Network. Absolutely. Very nice. Thanks again, Brad. And thank you, Lint listeners, for tuning in. Don't forget to pick up a copy of Daniel Paisner's novel, Balloon Dog, at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books. Uh, I just want a Picasso in my casa, no my castle. I'm a hassa, no I'm an asshole. I'm never satisfied, cannot my hustle. I want to rock, no, I want to Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit. 
to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit Vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit! to achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom is dead. My mom is right there. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.